Thanks, team. Well, morning, everybody. We're uh, continuing to sort of lay a bit of a foundation for, for the year and the year's theme, which is there is a river. And hopefully you've picked up by now that we're, we're, we're going after something this year. We, we really want no less than what God might want to give us. Um, we're going after renewal. And um, we've arrived, uh, I think, by hopefully by some sort of spiritual inspiration on this image of the river in Scripture. I was listening to uh, Talkback Radio this week and they were talking about uh, television shows which I've had the good fortune of missing out on, uh, the top-rating television shows. It's always interesting to kind of see, particularly on, I mean, free-to-air and the streaming services, what people are watching, uh, because it gives us, I think, an insight into who we are culturally. And they were talking about the death of the cooking show. Has any... That was kind of... it. it, I realised that I'd maybe perceived it before... I heard that, but I was like, yeah, the cooking show. Actually, I, I, I'm really into food and I, there was a heap of those cooking shows that I loved about five years ago. And, I mean, how many cooking shows were there? There were shows where there was, like, cats cooking off against one another in competition and all that sort of thing. Um, and then there was those deep sort of arty ones like um, Cooked uh, and Chef's Table all sorts of cooking shows. You could turn the TV on at just about any time and see a cooking show, but they were saying no more. And they were saying actually that My Kitchen... Is it My Kitchen Rules? Has that been the big one? My Kitchen Rules, they've changed the formula this year because they've recognised that people are kind of over the food stuff for, for whatever reason. And they're trying to make it more drama-led to, to help compete with... And this is, actually, I've got to say, I tried to watch this just because so many people were talking about it and I didn't last very long. Married at First Sight. So they're trying to go after Married at First Sight by making My Kitchen Rules more drama-based instead of food-based. And um, I think that says something, actually, that we're sick of food because we had, it would seem, an insatiable appetite for food and for cooking shows five years ago or so. But now... We've had too much. And I wonder if it's not a bit like the day after Christmas, Boxing Day, where you're just like, I don't want to look at ham or prawns or the food that I dream about all year. I'm just done. And for me, actually, because I love food so much, I can get a bit depressed when that comes on me. I'm like, what's life? What am I living for if if ham doesn't bring any joy anymore? Oh, cursed day that I would no longer want to eat ham. Uh, you know what I mean though, right? Because you can, you can have too much of, of a good thing. And I think we do. Just generally, we, we've got too much of what we want all the time. Um, Sharon and I have kicked in uh, to some restrictions on, on our diet. Uh, and we normally do that as a bit of a discipline around this time of year. And it's tough, but there's kind of a joy in it. I was driving the other day thinking, what, do I, what am I getting out of this? And one of the things that occurred to me is like having some sort of discipline around what I'm eating helps me not to just eat everything all the time. Because that can be tempting, right? You can be driving down the road and you're like, oh, a burrito would be good 
right about now, even if you don't need a burrito, <laughs> any time. <laughs> any time a burrito would be good. But you can have too much in the way of burritos as well. Cam's pulling a face at me. I've lost him already. <laughs> One of the, the philosophies behind ancient Christian spiritual disciplines around food is um, around a contrast between feast and what they call feria. You can't really appreciate the feast unless you have times when you're not feasting, right? And you can go through a cycle of, of appreciating the richness and blessing and abundance of food um, in its time, if you also have these other times, when you're scaling back a bit, where you're choosing not to just do it all. And I think it's interesting that one of the things that we're picking up on in culture, and I mentioned this at a leaders uh, meeting recently, is uh, I talked about the condo effect. People are interested in how to actually get rid of all the stuff that they have. If there's some sort of overemphasis on food and we're pulling back from that, there's also this sense in which we've just got too much stuff. And if anyone's come across Marie Kondo, she's the patron saint of the spring clean, helping you to work out what to throw away. Oh, we're sort of still partly in boxes from when we moved not that long ago. Well, it was probably too long ago for us still to be in boxes. But anyway, I was down in the garage kind of sorting through my clothes because Sharon said, I found a whole box of your clothes still in the thing and I wanted to give that box to the Vatermans because they're moving. So I just tipped your clothes out on the floor downstairs. <laughs> I was like, thanks a lot. And I went down there and I was like, oh, I've got these pants. I forgot about these pants. And I've got this shirt. I forgot about this shirt. And there was a joy in it for a moment when I thought, hang on a sec, I've been living pretty happily with the wardrobe that I've got upstairs for two months. But once I identified all (laughs) these wearable clothes that I still had, I, I felt a burden, like, I've got to find a way of fitting them in upstairs. Or do I? Um, and that's, you know, one of the things that's coming through in culture is it's people like Marie Kondo or Storage Wars, when you find out the amount of money that Westerners spend just to store their stuff, it's just insane. So we've got these gurus who are helping us to kind of bring some order to the fact that our lives are disordered by the fact that we can just buy what we want when we want it. We've got too much of all the good stuff. And that brings me to uh, where I want to go this morning, and I want to talk about order. Um, I want to sort of suggest that we think about this message this morning uh, in terms of being ordered by the river. So in 2020, the year that we go after renewal, we've touched down on this picture that we see in Scripture of the river as a symbol of God's presence in our midst, a symbol of God's presence in Scripture, and also a symbol of the life that God brings, that God is the source of life, that his presence is the source of life. Last week, uh, I talked about the fact that while there is this river, and that might be a picture of freedom for us, um, a picture of flourishing, those things don't come outside of the rule of God. Because God is king, Jesus is king, and he has a kingdom. And so if we want to dwell with God, if we want to experience God's presence, there's an extent to which it's always going to happen in his kingdom, right? We have to make some sort of decision. Are we willing, with our salvation, to be subject to God's rulership? 
living in God's presence requires accepting his rule. And I want to just outwork, I think, the next natural progression here. And that is that God's rule is an ordering of things. Last week I said that God's kingdom has content. That the Christian life, that life in God's presence, doesn't look like just any old thing. It looks like something. Something in particular. When we accept Jesus' reign and rule in our life, when we accept that we're a part of this kingdom, accept his authority, but it's his authority in our lives for something in particular, to live one way and not another, so that life lived in the presence of God looks one way and not another way. The, it is an ordered life. We're going to unpack that a little bit. Uh, I've had some good questions about the river thing uh, already this year. Um, and uh, I know that there's some of, of us who, who maybe struggle with the symbolic. One of the questions was like, well, can we take this symbol too far? Like, to what does it not apply? Um, can we sort of see uh, God working when the, when the urinal... Uh, flushes down, uh, you know, is it possible just to stretch this a little bit too much? And it might be. Um, but this symbol of the river as the source of life is, is, is clear in Scripture, and we're going to continue to unpack that as we go along. We came, I came this week across um, uh, a use of it that I thought was really nifty that can maybe be another piece in the puzzle for us who are still maybe going, so is the river in Genesis 2 the same river that's in Revelation 22, the same river that's in Ezekiel 47? Um, the word river for this life-giving river, this source of all life that uh, we see in Eden, in the second chapter of Genesis, is uh, this Hebrew word, Nehar. And there's a few, there's some variations on it, as there is in Hebrew, and then there's some just different words for river. But this particular word for river, Nehar, which you'll find in Genesis chapter 2, if you've got enough time uh, to read it in the Hebrew, uh, is used again in a few other places in scripture. So it generally talks about uh, those great rivers that we can read about early in the Bible, the Euphrates and such. But I found this instance this week uh, where uh, Psalm 105 uses Nahar. So Psalm 105 says uh, it flowed like Nahar in the desert. And what Psalm 105, and if you want to look uh, at, at it to try and catch me out, you can do that. What Psalm 105 is telling the story of is this amazing story where Moses, um, it says he's been with the people, they're out of Egypt now, they're on the journey, the long journey to the promised land. Uh, it says they were in this place called the Desert of Sin, which is an ominous-sounding place. And the people began to grumble because there was no water. You know the story? Um, and so Moses kind of takes some counsel uh, and uh, feels God direct them to, to go to this place called Horeb, uh, not far from there, and, and to strike a rock with a stick, basically. So Moses strikes this rock with a stick, and water comes gushing out. You know, know the story? Really rich uh, in lots of ways, this story. 
He opened the rock, uh, it says, and water gushed out. It flowed like a nahar, like a river, into the desert. And um, I went back and looked at that passage again this week. And it says uh, in Exodus 17, where it tells the story of Moses striking the rock and, and the people sort of being saved by the flowing of water that comes out that forms a river. Uh, they're quarrelling, um, the, the Hebrews, um, they're sort of disaffected by Moses' leadership, by the, by the fact that they're in a place called the Desert of Sin and they've got nothing to drink. It says in Exodus um, 17.6, And he called the place Massah and Meribah, this is Moses, after the waters flowed, because the Israelites quarrelled and because they tested God, saying... Is the Lord among us or not? So is God present with us here or not? And there's this connection between the river that would flow and an affirmation of whether God is with them or not. We're going to find lots of these as we go along this year. But I thought that was a cool, cool one. And if you're struggling a bit with the, the figurative nature of this metaphor, the river, as a symbol of the presence of God, if you've struggled at all with the way that I've picked that out of Genesis 2, um, one thing that I think is really useful to be aware of is how you are reading the Bible culturally and how the Bible was written, what sort of cultural context it was written into and who was involved in the writing of it. Graham says it was written for us, but not to us. Uh, and we, as 21st century Western people, uh, we're, we're actually not huge fans of figurative language. We're not actually huge fans of symbols, like the one that I'm suggesting Scripture presents us with the picture of the river. With some of the students that I teach... Um, theology to, I sometimes use this as a little analogy. I normally talk about Sharilyn's driver's licence, but I thought she might not appreciate it if I put a picture of her uh, licence up there, because she's pulling a funny face. No, she's not. Uh, <laughs> so this is like the sample driver's licence. Sam, Sam Signature, her name is. She's got some really good... Uh, face cream happening, because it says she's born in 1980. She looks a lot younger than I do. Uh, but anyway, um, I think you can have some kind of insight into the kinds of bias that we might bring to the reading of Scripture as 21st century Western people. Uh, if you think about this analogy, I'll say to my students, okay, I'm going to bring two artefacts that give some sort of testimony to who my wife is into the classroom right now. I'm going to show you her driver's licence, front and back. And then I'm going to read you a sonnet that I composed out of my love for her, out of the 15 or so shared years that we've been together, right? And I want you to tell me which one is truer of Sharon. And if you're anything like me... I mean, there might be some people who, who come from other cultural backgrounds. I'm sure there are in, in the room today. But the Western thing is to go, the poem's nice, but that's got facts on it, right? 
That could be, I mean, it's, it's lovely that you love your wife and maybe there's some interesting kind of observations in your sonnet about Sharon, and maybe you know her better than anyone else, but that's got facts on it, right? That's got um, her height, her date, the date of birth, it's got her, um, the colour of her eyes. Does it say something about race anymore? Like, maybe it doesn't. But, you know, we can classify people Caucasian, uh, can... Uh, there's a whole heap of information on there that is true of Sharon, but it might show something of our cultural bias that we think that is more true than, say, the testimony of someone who knows her really well, who knows her in a way that you could make the case goes beyond that. I might know her well enough to tell you that she lied about how, hot, how tall she is, <laughs> like a certain uh, president uh, might have done. Um, you can Google that later. You see what I'm saying? I'm not, I'm not actually saying... Uh, I'm actually not even saying that we should prejudice one over the other. I'm just saying that generally we bring a prejudice to it, right? And so um, just be aware of that. I'm, if you're like a cold, hard facts reader of Scripture, uh, which I think we should all aim to be, um, it's tricky sometimes as someone who, you know, has spent a lot of time trying to understand what Scripture's going on, I don't want to assuage you from that, convince you necessarily change it like that, but just be aware that you might have cultural bias going on there. And actually, uh, if you get into Hebrew, you'll see that the Jewish cultural context loves symbols, right? Uh, It's very figurative. Every word is like a picture of six different kinds of things. And we might kind of go, oh, is that a little bit scary? Maybe for us culturally, but not for Jewish people. So should we lean into that a little bit and think, what can we learn there? So just because the river we might talk about as a symbol um, as we kind of go through this series doesn't mean it's not a deep truth. And people who come from these more symbolically oriented cultures will often sort of say, well, that's the deepest kind of truth. Yeah, I mean, how tall your wife is, that's interesting. Tell me about what she does in the morning. You know? Tell me about how she smells in the morning. <laughs> you see what I'm saying? So, I um, might look like I'm going somewhere that I'm not particularly... Uh, but I do want to take us to one of these places where this passage, uh, where, where these principles get, get complicated for us, me, me as well. I want to go to the order stuff by looking at Genesis 1. Now, this might be a place where it's useful for you to have your Bibles open in front of you because I'm not going to put the whole text up on the screen. I'm just going to highlight some parts should be um, fairly familiar to us, this passage, for many of us. And it begins like this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. Um, Old Testament expert Walter Brueggemann um, talks about one of the things that's going on in this first chapter of Genesis... In these terms, he says, 
What we're reading about in part here is God's basic confrontation with chaos. Um, To take it to the serene and joyous rule of God over a universe that is able to be at rest. So the deep uh, is, is a picture of chaos, actually, in the ancient world. If you think about how unknown the ocean was to ancient people, uh, it was a place that um, was chaotic, where, where order didn't seem to reign. It was mysterious. And so the author of Genesis, the, the text is reaching for that, that God is, is doing something in this chaotic, formless zone. Verse 2 and 3 go on. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good and he separated the light from darkness. God called the light day and the darkness. He called night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. I'll just say, I'm not going to do a sort of uh, comprehensive exegesis of this passage this morning. It's just too, too, there's too much going on. But one of the things that's going on, we begin to see already, that God is creating order out of chaos. We begin with a picture of formlessness, of darkness, of disorder. And here we have God beginning to give it some form, right? We have light and we have dark. We can begin to distinguish that there's something going on here with the separation of light and dark. Verse 6, And God said, Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So God made the vault and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. God called the vault sky, and there was evening, and there was morning, the second day. Again, to our human minds, to the extent that we can comprehend these things, God is creating order. He's, he's creating order out of chaos, separating uh, the water from the sky. It goes on. Verse 9, and God said, let the waters under the sky be gathered to one place and let dry ground appear. And it was so. God called the dry ground land and he gathered the waters and the gathered waters he called sea. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land produce vegetation, seed bearing plants and trees on the land that bear fruit with seed in it according to their various kind. And it was so. The land produced vegetation, plant-bearing seed according to their kinds and trees bearing fruit with seed in it according to their kinds. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning the third day. A few things to notice. It continues to be good, this work that God is doing. But again, he is creating order and also... um, So one example of that is the different kinds of plants that he's creating. It's an ordered creation. And then there's this thing about fruitfulness, right? A blessing towards bearing fruit. So out of the order comes good things, fruit. Verse 14, 
And God said, let there be lights in the vault of the sky to separate the day from the night and let them serve as signs to mark sacred times and days and years and let them be lights in the vault of the sky to give light on the earth. And it was so. God made two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. He also made stars. God set them in the vault of the sky to give light on earth to govern the day and night and to separate light from darkness. And God saw that it was good and there was evening and there was morning. The fourth day. Again, God's kind of opening things up so that they make more sense, uh, in part by contrast in, in these passages. Night and day. Light and dark. 20. And God said... Let the water team with living creatures and let birds fly above the earth. Um, and let birds fly above the earth across the vault of the sky. So God created the great creatures of the sea and every living thing which the water teems with and which moves about in it according to their kinds. Again, there's that order thing. And every winged bird according to its kind in order. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, increase in number, and fill the water in the seas. Let the birds increase on the earth. There's some fruitfulness stuff there. And there was evening and there was morning, the fifth day. And this text may be a bit trickier for you to read, but I've got, I've got it here. And God said, Let the land produce living creatures to their kinds, the livestock, the creatures that move along the ground, the wild animals, each according to its kind. There's some order stuff creating order, and it was so. God made the wild animals according to their kind, livestock according to their kind, it goes on. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky. You could say there's some order stuff happening there as well. Over the livestock and all the wild animals. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created the male and female. He created them. God blessed them and said, be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Again, some fruitfulness and order language. It goes on. Verse 31 says, God saw all that he had made and it was very good and there was evening and there was morning on that sixth day. And one of the things that's sometimes lost reading in English is uh, in the Hebrew you, you can see some formal elements that, that don't stand out quite so um, obviously. In English, and this is one of the sort of things that points towards order that um, people have noticed. There's a connection between the first day of creation when light and dark uh, are separated and day four where the light and dark is kind of filled with things, sun, moon and stars. Between day two of creation when the sea and the sky are separated from another, one another, and then day five, when God puts things in those places. Uh, day three, when land and plants are put in place, land separated from water, and day six, when land, animals and humans are put in that place. But it's not over, right? Creation is not over. Because it says in Genesis 2.2, By the seventh day God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. Our English Bibles often do us a bit of a disservice here by separating 
the resting from day seven into the second chapter. Because if you read them next to each other, chapters one and two, you'll see that day seven is a part of this process. That's why we talk about the seven days of creation, because the resting is a part of what God is doing there. What I sort of rushed through that chapter four was to show us that there is this pattern established at creation. Establishing order through work, which, believe it or not, God doesn't say is a bad thing. It's a good thing in Genesis chapter one. Blessing for fruitfulness, which I pointed out. And then rest. These things go together. So it's in day seven, Genesis chapter two, that we have this image that we've touched on already this year. An image of life as God intended it, where there's the river flowing down and human beings there. Where creation and humans in particular are co-present with God. They're dwelling together. It's a picture of life in the presence of God in the resting. It's um, a picture of the new to which the renewal that we are talking about would have us return. Right? It's, it's really where we want to get back to in some ways, to live with God, to dwell with God, to know his presence as fully as possible. Another way of describing what's going on here in Eden, Eden is Shabbat Shalom. So Shabbat is the Hebrew for Sabbath, the word that we translate as Sabbath. Um, and to help us understand it just quickly, Shabbat just means to cease, to desist, to rest. It basically just means to stop. And in that stopping, to experience completeness soundness, welfare, and peace. You'll know that this concept was important enough to the Jews, important enough to God, that it's one of the four commandments, uh, ten commandments, it's the fourth commandment, right? Keep the Sabbath day holy. This seven, this cycle of seven, and this sort of rest, at the completion of the cycle, is that important to God. And what God is basically saying, I would suggest, in giving this to his people and putting it so high up on the list of things that they, as God's people, are supposed to do and observe, he's saying, adopt my order. This is an order that I work through. You can see it here in the creation narrative. And you, as my people, made in my image, are to live according to my constituted, instituted order. This works, God's saying. If it's good enough for me, it should be good enough for you. Now, there's all sorts of reasons why God did that. But we see that he's doing that for the people of Israel, for the Jews. He's saying, this is a way of life that I want you to live by. This is an order of living. Now, if you're worried that I'm about to go uh, 
a bit wacky SDA or something like that and sort of say, I think we need to start uh, <laughs> resting in that way and it's not on a Sunday, that's a conspiracy, it's on a Saturday. I'm not going to do that. Uh, I think some of the harshest words in Scripture, uh, Paul in Galatians where he's saying, don't make these sorts of things a stumbling block for people who are coming from another place. Jesus um, says in Matthew 12, in this section where the religious leaders are kind of having a go at he and the disciples because they've seen them eating some grain on the Sabbath. Uh, He says a bunch, but he gets to this point of saying, um, I tell you, someone greater than the temple is in your midst, for the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. See, Jesus didn't intend we can read in the New Testament to abolish the law. He didn't intend we might extend upon that to say that he didn't intend to abolish the Sabbath. But what he does is he reinterprets it from the perspective of the one who instituted it. So um, Jesus is basically kind of pointing to the fact that the order comes from him, right? He is the one in God who gave us the order. Mark 2, 27 to 28 makes it a bit clearer for us. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Part of what Jesus is saying to those attacking him is actually, you're not the lords of the Sabbath. I am. Because he recognises something that goes on in the human heart. We feel we have two firm a grasp of a particular order, it becomes about power for us, right? We become the lords of that thing. And so like the religious leaders of Jesus' day, we can be going, you're not doing the right thing like I'm doing the right thing. And that works against the spirit of God that we come to see in Jesus This is um, something I'd just like you to remember. The law, even the law for the Sabbath, does not bring us to the presence of God. But in Jesus, his presence helps us to establish an order of life that the law cannot bring in and of itself. And that's why I think we don't get hung up on a particular day. Like Paul says in Romans, one person considers one day more sacred than the other, another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. Whoever regards one day as special does so for the law. Professor Rick Watts, when he preached here, he talked about the fact that the law is about people-keeping, not law-keeping. And so the one who institutes the order, the one who understands how it works, can say, you can use that thing not for its intended purpose. You can actually do damage to people by making the law about the law and not making the law about people. I recognise the time. I'm uh, moving through the last two slides here. And so I can imagine that if we went to Jesus uh, about this, like, do I really have to take a day of rest every seven days? He'd probably say something like, well, work, 26 days in a row if you want to but I don't think it's going to be good for you (laughs) or maybe you have to in a certain season of your life 
Jesus, by his grace, will make it sufficient for us, I'm sure. But there is something in this seven-day cycle, this order that God has instituted, that works. I don't know if you've thought about the fact that it works so well that people of all cultures have essentially adopted the seven-day calendar. It wasn't always a seven-day calendar. The Chinese had a ten-day calendar for quite a long time. But it's just made the most sense, sort of cosmologically, astrologically, astrologically, astronomically, um, that this seven-day week works in creation and, I want to suggest, works in people's lives as well. It's an example of the fact that God has blessed creation, loved creation, wants it to be fruitful, but he's also ordered it in a particular way. I don't know if you've been a Christian for long enough to notice that under our own rule, our lives tend to disorder. When we lord our own laws, our lives don't contain the presence of God and they go towards disorder. And that is why we need renewal. We need to keep coming back to God and saying, does the order of my life match the order that you would have for it? Or is, this, or is there some disorder here that you want to bring some order to? Because I know that that's what you do, God. You bring order to disorder. You make chaotic things ordered again. You make broken things fixed again. You make old things new again. I'm going to ask the band to come up. Just get us ready to, to go out. When we submit our lives to Jesus, when we come into his presence for the first time, our lives take on a new order. I don't know if you remember that from when you were first saved. I talked last week about how that reordering, that submission of our lives to God's order shouldn't just be a one-time thing. So the million-dollar question at this point is, well, if it's not ultimately about whether we worship and rest on a Saturday or a Sunday, what does it look like for God's order to come into our life? There's lots of ways of coming at this. Are we about to go to disorder here with the, uh, the feedback? There's lots of ways of coming at this. In, in the Middle Ages, uh, Europe was in a, a state of chaos. Some of you who will know your history know that the barbarians, you know, uh, flooded down into Christian Europe. I stand slightly to the side here. And um, in lots of ways, the order that Christianity had bought to that part of the world was lost. But then there were these groups of people, St. Benedict being one of them, who decided, let's dedicate our lives to bringing some order back. You might have heard of monastic orders, right? Orders that people take. It's where men and women say, in the face of the chaos of this world, I want God to rule my life. And we're going to structure it somehow. It's not just nothing. We don't get to live however we want.
I love uh, this translation of Matthew eleven twenty eight, which we. back to that sorry one of the things that the monastics did was they said let's develop a path that can bring that order to our lives and they talked about the way of purging the way of illumination leading to the way of union and we've talked a bit about some of this stuff already today it's a way of saying actually God What do I need to get rid of in my life? How can I make space in my life so that light can come in, illumination can come into my life? It's a bit like condoing your house, getting rid of a whole heap of stuff that you probably don't need anymore so you can get new perspective on where it is that you live so that you can bring order to your way of life. Why don't we stand? I'm going to pray. Are you tired, worn out, burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me and you'll learn to live free and lightly. We're going to challenge you over the coming weeks to think about this threefold path in your life. If you desire the presence of God, this isn't the only way. It's just a way that we suggest you you experiment with a bit. If you are asking the question, how can I live more in union with God? Think about what you can do to make some space. So something that's taking your time, that's taking your attention, that really doesn't need to be there. If you're going to start again with God, if you're going to spring clean your life with God, what might He ask you to get rid of? And then ask the question, once space is created, how does light fill this place that's emptier now than it once was? How could God be speaking to me in this newly created space through scripture, through prayer, through seeking counsel from someone who you respect in the faith? Because life in the presence of God doesn't have no shape. It has a shape. Renewal means being ready to make things new again and to work with God for that end. Hey, we've gone over time. Uh, I'm sure Graham and the team are going to lead us in in a song and uh, you can stay and worship if you want to, but if you need to be somewhere, please feel free. God, I pray that you would help us to make space in our lives for you. I pray that you would illuminate our lives. Lord, I pray that we would seek union with you. Just sing.